This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to to quiet our hearts right now and just be still and know that you are our God. That Christ is your son. And we pray that he would be lifted up as we dig into your word together. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to love him more. And we pray that that by your spirit, you would open our minds and our hearts right now to behold wonderful things in your word. And that by the power of your spirit, you would transform us and put your word into our living as we go forth from this place. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Well, I enjoy trail running, and especially this time of year in the spring and also in the fall when the leaves are, leaves are out, the beautiful times of, of year to be in the woods running trails. And when you're running a trail, you'll see mile posts along the, the way that kind of tell you how far you've come and how far you have to go on your run, so you see the mileposts, you kind of pass by them, but on a lot of trails, you'll also come to a fork in the trail. And when you come to a fork, you're not just passing by, you are forced to a decision. You have to choose. The, the fork confronts you, and you have to choose which way you are going to go. I think about something that the great missionary martyr Jim Elliott once wrote in his prayer journal. Jim Elliott once wrote, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork. That men must, must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Well, of course, Jim there was just channeling his Lord and Savior, Jesus, because Jesus was a fork. When you looked at Jesus, and when you look at Jesus today, you must do something. You must decide. And the text that we're looking at today in God's word is very much a fork. It it confronts us. It forces us to decision. Will you respond to Jesus, and if you do respond, what does it mean to follow him? Let's look at that today. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, and we're going to talk today about responding to and following Jesus. So in this series, we're walking through the gospel of Luke, and we're looking at texts that especially are only found in Luke's gospel 
Jesus tells two little twin parables here in verses 28 through 32 that are only in Luke. And before that, he tells another parable that's also in Matthew, but here it has its own unique Lucan twist. And so we're going to look today at verses 15 through the end of chapter 14. If you take your copy of God's Word and follow along as I read. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a field, and I must, I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. And bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. So, What do we see in this passage, first of all, about responding to Jesus? So before we get into um, the text, into verse 15, I want to set the stage here. Because this is a direct continuation of the passage that we looked at last week in the first 14 verses. The setting is that they are still seated at the table. And if you remember from last week, if you were here, Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee. It was the Sabbath. 
there was a man there who was swollen with fluid, and, and Jesus heals the man, but this infuriates the, the Pharisees that are around the table because they, they associate the healing with work on the Sabbath, and, and, and Jesus was not supposed to heal anybody on the Sabbath, but he did. And of course, there was nothing unbiblical about it, right? There was nothing in the Old Testament that associated, you know, healing with work or anything like that. It was their own legalistic rule that they had attached to the Bible. But nonetheless, they were furious at Jesus for doing this. And then, if you, were, you remember, Jesus told a parable that exposed the hypocrisy of their hearts and the hard-heartedness that they had. And when he finishes, surely you could have heard a pin drop. <laughs> and it is in that context that one of the guys at the table blurts out <laughs> what we see in verse 15. So what do we see here? When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. <laughs> now, at first it seems weird for the context. You know, what is this guy, what is this guy even talking? Well, it's a distraction. Because he's just been confronted. All of them at the table, they've just been confronted. And they don't want to deal with what they've heard. So, the statement in verse 15 is, is, is meant to be a distraction. But actually, the person who says it is, points to, he's right about something and he's wrong about something. First of all, what is he right about? Well, he's right about the fact that there is going to be a great feast one day in glory for God's people. He was absolutely right about that. We see that in the Old Testament, in many passages, one of my favorites, one of those beautiful passages in the prophets is Isaiah 25 and verses 6 through 9. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine, on this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations. When he has swallowed up death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth for the Lord has spoken. On that day, it will be said, look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So we see in the Old Testament, you know, prophecies like this about this great feast that we're going to have in glory. Revelation talks about it, the great marriage feast of the Lamb and the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in a few minutes, also points to this great feast that we're going to have one day in glory. In fact, when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, what is he, let's look at what he says in, in Matthew 26. It says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, 
and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what does Jesus say? He says, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus there is looking forward to the great feast that we are going to have one day with him in the new heaven and earth. So the Lord's Supper points forward to that day, to that great feast. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, what does he say there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. So in the Lord's Supper, we are both looking back and we are looking forward. We, we are looking back to our Lord's death for our sins, but we are also looking forward to his coming again when we are going to celebrate and feast with him in, in glory. So the man who says, who talks about we're gonna, there's going to be a feast one day and glory. That's absolutely right. Here's where he was wrong. He was wrong because he was assuming that he was prepared to be there when in fact he was not prepared. Because he was rejecting Jesus. All of them around that table, they were all rejecting Jesus. And the only way that we're going to be a part of that feast and glory one day is if we know Jesus. Because Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can't be a part of that glorious feast one day if we don't know Christ. And these guys were rejecting Christ. They, but they think they're, they think they're in. They think that just by virtue of who they are and the circumstances of their birth and that they are, they're super religious Pharisees, that they are going to be there. They are assuming that and they're wrong. They're not prepared for it. They're not prepared to stand before God. And so they need to be jolted. And so Jesus tells a parable now to jolt them into reality. Verses 16 and 17. Then he told him, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come, because everything is now ready. So Jewish feasts like this were incredible. <laughs> they were often multi-day multi affairs. I mean, these people knew how to throw a party, and this one promised to be a grand event because this host was incredibly wealthy, and it was gonna, the food was going to be amazing. The setting was going to be beautiful, and it's all ready. Everything has been prepared. He sends out one of his servants to go tell all the people, hey, come, everything's ready. But wait, wait. Verses 18 through 20, but without exception, they all began to make excuses 
The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm unable to come. Now, all of these excuses are lame to the point of being insulting. But what stands out here, and I never saw this about this passage until studying this week, but they are acting in concert. (laughs) They're not acting independently. They've gotten together and said, we are going to shame the host. Look Look at verse 18. It says, but without exception, if, you, if the NIV and the ESV both say, but, but they, they all alike, okay? The, the Greek literally means from one, from one, okay? Like in one voice, right? They've gotten together and hatched this. They're acting in concert. They say, you, well, let's get together and shame. We're going to shame this host. It's like, you know, cancel culture or something like first century style. Let's, let's, sh- let's shame this guy. So they, they, they make up these excuses. But it was all an effort to shame the host. Now, think about this in relation to the ministry of Jesus and what's going on. Because we've seen Jesus, he's going around, he's, he's preaching, people are being healed, you know, lives are being changed. But most of the people that are coming are what? They're outsiders. You know, um, people like Samaritans and, and Gentiles and, and, and women and, you know, uh, pe- poor people and people who are being healed. Most of the religious people, like the guys that were sitting around that table, most of them have said no. No. They've... They've, clo- they've, they've closed their hearts and they've closed ranks against Jesus. That's the, that's the context here. So now you can understand the, 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 the meaning of the, of, the, of the parable. So they get together and they attempt to shame him. And we're not coming. Verse 21. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Do you remember verse 13 from last week? Look back at verse 13. Jesus says, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind. You see, this host who they attempted to shame, he has no intention of postponing this great feast, let alone canceling it. Oh no. It's going to go on and it's going to be bigger and better than ever. It's just that the faces around the table are going to be surprising. They thought they were going to shame him. 
by saying, we don't, we don't want to come. We're rejecting you. He has no intention of playing by their rules. <laughs> He's not going to cancel anything. He's not going to postpone it. He doesn't, he doesn't need them to be there. You see, in the first century, a lot of times with these, with these feasts, you know, there was this whole pattern of reciprocation involved, right? Uh, I invite you, so you invite me, and, you know, we can scratch each other's back and uh, all, all, all of that. This host doesn't need them. <laughs> he doesn't need them to be there. It was an honor for them to be invited. If they say no, that's on them, but the feast goes on. But it's going to be a different group there. Instead of the high and mighty, it's going to be the humble and lowly. And so he tells a servant, you go out. You go out into the streets and the alleys. You go out to the wrong side of the tracks. You go out to where the, the downtrodden are, where the overlooked are. You go to those people the people that others don't notice, the people that just others just want to erase. And we're going to give them the time of their lives. In 1987, there was a, a missionary in the Philippines named Pam. was pregnant. And she was told that if she was able to have the baby at all, that the baby would be uh, severely disabled, and she was strongly encouraged to abort her baby, which she steadfastly refused to do, never crossed it her mind. And so the baby was born. It's a boy. He was healthy. His name was Tim, Tebow. And of course, you know about his football career and his broadcasting career and all that, but one of the coolest things that Tim Tebow has done is something called Night to Shine. <laughs> And it's a special night where they invite you know, people with Down syndrome or people who are disabled in different, different ways. And it's kind of like a prom and there's a red carpet and there's a feast. And it's just like this, this amazing night for, you know, for, these, these, for people that, you know, people in our culture just want to overlook or erase entirely or say you're not even worthy of life. And said, so we we're, we're going to give them the time of their lives. This is, this is, this is going to be a night to shine. <laughs> this gracious host says, you go out. He says to a servant, you go out and you get these people that nobody else cares about. And you, you, I want them in here, all the way in, in the palace, around the table. And so he goes out and he gets as many as he can. And he comes back and he reports, verse 22, Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done and there's still room. Well, that just won't do. Because <laughs> this host, this gracious host has a full heart and he wants a full house. And so he says in verse 23, he tells the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. He tells the servant, this time, I want you to go, out, go outside the walls of the city 
And I want you to go out and want, I want you to get the people that aren't even considered worthy of being within the walls of the city. Go out into the highways and the hedges where the destitute and the beggars hang out. And you bring them in here. You bring them all the way in, in through the gates, into the city, into my house, at my table. Now, a couple of things stand out here for us. First of all, there's something here about grace. Something about grace. Who were we when Jesus found us? We were lost. We were spiritually blind. We were helpless. And the good news of the gospel just came to us as a free gift. In fact, to become a Christian, we have to humble ourselves and, and declare our own spiritual bankruptcy and say, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We have no claim on God. The gospel just came to each one of us as a gift that we receive by repentance and faith. So there's something here about grace. Second, there's something here about outreach. There's something here about the outreach of the church that we are to do. Now think about this in the context of Luke and Acts. Because what's, what's the theme of Luke and Acts? It's the church on the march. The church doing outreach, right, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Think about that theme in Luke and Acts in relation to this. Think about the expanse of our outreach. What does he say to the servant in verse 21? Go out into the streets and alleys. Verse 23, go out into the highways and the hedges. And in other words, there are to be no boundaries to our outreach. No geographical boundaries. We're to go to every tribe and tongue, every people group on earth. No socioeconomic boundaries, no ethnic boundaries, no racial boundaries, none. Go to every nook and cranny, go to every person. That's the expanse of our outreach. Second, the urgency of our outreach. The food is ready, <laughs> it's been cooked, it's prepared. And so he, he tells them in verse 21, go quickly, go quickly and bring them in. And there's to be an urgency to our outreach because more than food is perishing. People are perishing each day without Christ. So there's to be an urgency to our outreach. Third, the initiative of our outreach. What does he tell them in verse 21 and 23? Go out. Go out and get them. And so as Jesus commands us in Matthew 28, we are to go to all the world and make disciples. But missions begins a whole lot closer than that. It begins with each one of us reaching out to the people around us, to our friends, neighbors, family members who don't know Christ. Easter is coming up in a week next Sunday. Who will you reach out to? Who will you invite 
to come and be sitting with you next Sunday under the gospel. Take the initiative. And then the passion of it. The passion of the outreach. What, what is it? Look at the language here in, in verse 21. He says, br- br- bring in here these people. Verse 23, he says, make them come in. Now, in, in the Greek, it's clear. They're not forcing them. But there is a strong element of persuasion. There has to be. Because these people aren't used to being invited to anything. <laughs> let alone this. And it's hard for people today to understand grace because it's so amazing. It's hard for people to grasp the gospel because it's so good and we're not wired to understand grace. So it means helping people understand it passionately. Now the parable ends on a sobering note here in verse 24. Jesus says, for I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. How tragic. They were invited first, and now they're going to miss the whole thing. Don't miss your opportunity. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're here for a reason. Don't miss your opportunity. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. Respond. So we see something here about responding to Jesus. Second, we see something here about following Jesus. Following Jesus. We see it in verses 25 through 35. Now, the scene in the text shifts from the scene of a great banquet in this parable to the great crowds that are following Jesus by this point. There's like massive crowds that are following Jesus, but Jesus sees that as a problem. Because Jesus looks at the size of these crowds and he knows that a good number of these people are superficial and shallow. And he wants the people who are genuine followers of his to, to, to stand out, to be revealed. And so he, now he says something that is going to make the superficial and the shallow drop off. Verses 25 through 27. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple disciple. Now, anybody at this point, (laughs) you know, who is shallow and superficial is going to say, hey, this whole thing means that I might have to die, or that at the very least, my whole life has to change. I'm out of here. That's what Jesus wants. Look at, let's look at it closer. Verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hate here is obviously an idiom, right? It's a Jewish idiom for preference, right? It's not 
teaching, obviously, you know, that we are to, uh, to, to, to hate our families. That would contradict every other page of the Bible. No, this is an idiom for preference. He is saying here that if, 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 your, love, if your love for me is not the first love in your life, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 and verse 4, but I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. That has to be Jesus. And unless Jesus is our first love, we're not going to be able to love other people the way that we should love them. Our, our loves have to be ordered. It's, it's Jesus first, clearly, or we, or we are not his disciples. And by the way, in the first century context in which this is spoken, and in many parts of the world today, if you wait for the approval of your family to follow Jesus, you're never going to follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus in many parts of the world today, and certainly in the first century, meant that you may well lose your family, they're not going to support you, and you may even lose your own life. Again, in verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, again, understand that in the first century context, a cross is not a piece of jewelry. It was not something on top of a church steeple. A cross was a means of execution, and everybody there knew it. Israel was under Roman occupation. The Romans had perfected the art of crucifying people. Other people, other groups engaged in it, but the Romans, the Romans had perfected crucifixion. They crucified thousands of people. Everybody there in the first, this first century context has seen, looked up and seen people being crucified. The Romans crucified thousands of people and they did it in public places. They wanted everybody to be able to see it because it was meant to make a point. You get out of line, this can happen to you. You could end up on a cross. The most brutal, humiliating way to die, nobody wanted to be bearing their cross. And yet Jesus says that if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your own cross. What does he mean? He means that we must be willing to die for him, clearly, but more. We have to be willing to die to ourselves in order to live for him. In chapter 9 and verse 23, what does Jesus say there? Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. 
So the Christian life is daily dying to ourselves, dying to our selfishness, dying to our sin, so that we can live for Christ. And in him, we find life. Verse 24, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. In Jesus, we find true life. But it's a crucified life. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But is living a crucified life, is that that a decision to be undertaken flippantly, casually? Obviously not. And Jesus now tells two little twin parables back to back to make that very point. First of all, in verses 28 through 30. Which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundations and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. His incomplete building project will just sit there as a monument to his own stupidity. People will mock Verses 31 and 32. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. How foolish for any ruler to go into a war without assessing the military situation. Count the cost. And then he underscores it in verse 33. Jesus says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. He says, does this mean I have to liquidate, (laughs) sell off everything that I have? It might. I know many missionaries who have done something similar to that before they went overseas. But at the very least, it means this. It means that we cannot be attached to material things or to money and, to be, and be attached to Jesus at the same time. New Testament scholar uh, Daryl Bach says it so well. Jesus is first. He is the one object of focus. Persevering with Jesus means being attached to him, not to possessions. I love this. If Jesus offers what he says he offers, then there can be no greater possession than following him. So this text confronts us. What is your treasure? What is your treasure? Is it the Savior or stuff? You do know that you can't hold on to the stuff. We talked about a quote by Jim Elliott at the beginning of this message. 
Here's another famous quote from Eliot's prayer journals. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. The salt that they used, the people there would have, that were listening to this originally would have used, it came from evaporated pools around the, the Dead Sea, but it was often mixed with impurities. And so what would happen is that when, when, when it was like that, moisture would hit it and it was just gone, phew, evaporate instantly. And just the impurities would be left. It, it, it was worthless. People would just throw it out. Waste. Jesus is saying here, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. You are invited to the greatest banquet of all. But you must respond. And it will mean dying, (laughs) at least to yourself, but you will find life. You know, Jesus says in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And in Jesus, at this feast, you will find the only thing that will satisfy. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. There is no satisfaction in the things of the world. You will not be satisfied in anything that this world has to offer. Nothing in this world will satisfy the deepest needs in your soul. Only Jesus can do that. And so he says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Now the Lord's Supper that we're about to take points to this very thing. Only Jesus can satisfy. Let's pray as we get ready to take part in that feast. As we prepare as believers to take part in this special supper, this feast that is ordained by by Jesus, this is a time... 1 Corinthians 11 says to to examine ourselves. First of all, ask yourself, am I in Christ? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? You can become one. (laughs) The work is done. There's a savior who died for sinners like you and me who rose from the dead, that we can have forgiveness of sins an abundant life and eternal life. That, that is offered to us as a free gift, but you must receive it. You must respond. And we do that through repentance and faith. We do that by turning from you know, sin and self and doing life our way. And we turn to Jesus and we trust in him alone. Would you do that right where you are? Turn to Jesus, trust him. Receive him into your life as your Savior and Lord and King. If you're a Christian, 
examine yourself by saying, is there anything in my life that is hindering my fellowship with God right now? Is there a grudge or animosity in my heart towards another person that needs to be let go of? Is there a sin that needs to be repented of? Is anything clouding, hindering your fellowship with God? Let's spend a few moments right now just in confession, looking to Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for your invitation. We, it came to us as pure grace. as nothing but a gift. We could never earn it. We thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf, and especially as we enter into this week and we think about his death for our sins, his resurrection from the dead. Lord, we thank you for the work of Christ, and we rest solely in the merits of Jesus and his finished work. And it is that that we look to as we take part in the special meal that you ordained. Lord, as we do it, may we remember the great sacrifice that has been made on our behalf. And Lord, may we look forward to the great feast that we will get to share in one day with you in glory. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 